So here's what we're going to do today. Um, if you guys, what I want to do is we're going to, um, I'm going to preface this morning just by basically saying, I'm not going to be teaching on the book of Revelation this week. I'll give you guys a very, very fast uh, update on where we're going to be heading for the next couple of weeks. So next week is the baptism. If you guys, most of you guys know, um, all three of our services are going to be combined into one service. And this time of year is kind of interesting. It's unique. Like uh, Questa just got out. So a lot of people are gone um, as, uh, for the summer and whatnot. Cal Poly is going to be out soon. So everything drops off. Pretty much our whole church kind of shrinks to half, maybe a little bit less than half over the summer. And so that means that there are going to be changes uh, the, for our schedule here. It's not going to affect you guys in the morning, but our evening service we won't have throughout the summer months. Um, so that means everything will be consolidated to here in the morning, which is great. It means I got Sunday nights off. I can hang out with my family. I'm stoked about that. Um, but what we're going to be doing is today, we're going to be talking about baptism to get us ready for baptism next week. I'm going to say something about that in a second. So next week, all three of our services are combined into one service at 11 o'clock next Sunday um, at the beach. So come on out, be part of the beach. Pray that God will give us good weather, that we don't have like these 60-mile-an-hour gusts of winds coming down Los Valley Road. It's horrible. I don't even want to go outside in that type of weather. So pray that God just blesses us and gives us nice sunny weather. It's beautiful. Somehow the water miraculously just goes up to like 85 degrees. Pray that. He can do that. It would be awesome if he did. Um, and at the same time, and then after that, uh, the week following that, one of, my, one of my very good friends, one of my best friends actually, a guy by the name of Scott Clifford, um, he was a part of our church as we started it here, and uh, he, I, I'm, he was one of the very, very first people that ever came to our, our Bible study when we started off in our house. And um, just God done a lot of amazing things in his life. He just barely got his life uh, right with Christ just before I met him out surfing, came to our Bible study. Him and I became very good friends. Uh, we're very similar in a lot of ways. Um, and then uh, Scott, I had an opportunity to just kind of mentor Scott. And then several years ago, Scott moved to New Zealand to plant a church in Rotorua. Um, and he'll be telling you guys a little bit about that. But he's actually going to be teaching on June 6th. Um, I'll be here, uh, but he'll be teaching. So I'm really excited about that, to just hear what God's been doing in his life. He's a fantastic teacher. You guys are going to be really blessed. Uh, he went to Cal Poly, both him and his wife. Um, he played rugby. He's a big, tall guy. He's kind of a bruiser. He's rough around the edges, just like me. That's why I love him. And uh, so it's going to be a great time. You guys will be really encouraged by what he's got to say. And then uh, after that, pretty much everything changes in terms of our summer structure. So that being said, what we're going to do right now is we're going to take a look at this bigger picture of baptism. Now, before you guys check out, because some of you might be like, I've already been baptized. I've already heard this message or heard something similar to this message before. What I hope to do to basically speak to three arenas of audiences here today. One is if you're a Christian, you've never been baptized. I, I want you to hear what I'm about to say um, because my hope is to persuade you to be baptized. It's my hope. If you're here and you are a Christian, you've already been baptized, my hope is to renew passion, to rekindle fire, rekindle love in your heart for Jesus, for what he's done for you. And baptism is a sign which points to that. So to be part of that, to see that, not be baptized necessarily again, but to see what God's doing, to be reminded of what God did in your life, maybe when you were baptized, that it points back to the beauty of the cross. And then thirdly, if you're not a Christian here, I have to persuade you to become a Christian. To see what God has done for you in and through Christ so that you would let go of sin and turn away from any type of rebellion and see that Jesus and what he's done for you in his life through his death, resurrection on the cross. And so that you would trust him and give yourself to him and love him and not give yourself to the things of this world. Not commit yourself to sin and sinful practices and proclivities and ultimately which leads to death. 
So my desire for all three of us, really at the end of the day, is that we would see Jesus. That's what I hope to see. So with that being said, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work today on this. Uh, today's message probably won't be as long as typical. Some of you are like, oh, so what does that mean, like 20 minutes? No, so it means like maybe 40 minutes. You're like, oh, that's still long. Right, I preach for usually an hour, but that's okay. But today's going to be a little bit shorter. We'll get into worship. You're like, that's pretty long. I know. Um, but we love Jesus. We want to just let God speak. So today's going to be a little bit different. So I'm going to pray that we're going to get to work on what we're going to be looking at here today, which is this issue of baptism uh, being a sign which points us back to what God's done for us through Christ. So, Father, right now we just uh, commit this morning in your hands. We pray that you would be exalted. Pray that you'd be glorified. Pray that you would open our eyes to see you, Jesus. We want to see you. We want to be transformed by you, Jesus. God, we don't want just simple knowledge. We don't want just uh, theologizing on information. Um, Because we know that knowledge puffs up, but love melts our hearts and builds up. So, God, I pray today that all the theology, all the concepts, all the thoughts, all the logic that we would get today, that it would somehow by the power of the Holy Spirit be transformed and converted into our hearts uh, to be like fuel, to engage our hearts to worship you, Jesus. We want to be worshipers of you, lovers of the living God. So we commit ourselves in your hands. We ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, I want to preface this morning uh, basically by trying to help us to think in more of a Hebraic mindset. What I mean by that is as Westerners, uh, we tend to think very logically. We want to think in terms of categories. We want to take uh, ideas about God and sort of categorize them into sort of uh, methods and uh, categories of theology, um, which is not bad. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it's good. I love theology. I love reading theology. But at the same time, what ends up oftentimes happening is uh, when we try to put God into a category we find that he doesn't really fit into a lot of different categories, or he fits into a number of different categories, because he's very, very multifaceted. Um, And so what I want to try to do today is to at least allow us to have somewhat of a lens that helps us to see things in more of a Hebraic sense, which means we've got to think in terms of the way that God wrote the Bible, uh, the way that the Bible was given to us and displayed for us. And so with that being said, what I mean by that is one of the things that you'll find is that God, uh, when he works, when he acts, He doesn't just simply act in theories. In other words, he doesn't just give pithy statements uh, that sound good, that make a lot of sense, that ring true or resonate inside our soul, and basically pull away and say, figure out what to do with that. What God does is he does stuff. God acts. God engages. God moves. And usually what happens when God moves and when God does things, he does it for his glory. He does it uh, with with the end in mind of displaying his, ma- his mighty works, his great power, and his wisdom. That make sense? Every time God does something, it's always intended to put on display his infinite wisdom, his almighty power, and his vastness of his ways. So when we see these things, we would know beyond any shadow of a doubt that it's God that's doing this, not just some sort of fabrication, not demonic activity, not man. All right? That- that's what God does. He always operates that way. Um, and, and he does that because he's great. He's all glorious. I mean, there are moments when God just very clearly unveils and pulls back our, everything that would hinder us from seeing him, and he allows us to see him in ways in which it's tangible. We know God's working. And there's other ways in which God uh, conceals himself, but he's still there. In other words, it's not just sort of 
uh, theologizing about himself, but God sort of can sometimes even writes himself into sort of poetic ways. For example, the book of Ruth. Uh, I'm sorry, the book of Esther. Not once does the name of God ever appear in that book. Not once, which is unique for Hebraic writing. Not once in the entire book of Ruth does God's name appear. But God is there all over the pages. He's all over the pages. And the intention to point out is that there are times when God reveals himself. There's times that God conceals himself. uh, But the purpose oftentimes is to bring about glory, uh, either in just manifold, displayed ways, but sometimes in ways that require us to think, that require us to just look to meditate, to consider upon what he's doing in more intense ways, okay? That being said, when God does work, when God does move and acts, God oftentimes throughout history has also established some sort of memorandum that follows up afterwards. In other words, the purpose of this follow-up event or You might want to call it even a tradition or whatever the case may be. We'll see here, and this might make sense a little bit. I know for us as Westerners, especially uh, post-Reformation, we we tend to be very anti-traditional. We're like, ah, we don't believe in tradition. That's, you know, old school. That's Roman Catholic. That's bad. And the reality is, tradition's not bad. It's the types of traditions that sometimes set the stage for being bad or being good. But nonetheless, whatever those traditions are, you need to either recognize there are some traditions that God gives that need to be given because God says do them. Communion is a tradition. It's a godly tradition. In fact, in the church, we typically call it a sacrament. It's something that is intended to be done. We do it, but here's what ends up happening. Because we tend to be uh, programmed and wired in a way where if we do something in a repetitious basis, what ends up happening? It just becomes meaningless. It becomes worthless. And so what we want to try to do as we talk about these ideas of signs and what God does, when I mean signs, I don't mean like signs, miracles, and wonders. I mean like signs, like a sign, like Ralph's, right? Or Kinko's or Starbucks, that green thing with the sign. Um, If I was, you know, smart, I would have put some signs up there so you can see like what I'm talking about. But you get the idea, signs that point to something. And it's intended to give, make our eyes and our thoughts to go to something. Um, we don't go to that big red thing that has black letters on it that says Ralph's to buy a dozen eggs. We go inside the store that the sign signifies. That's where you buy eggs, right? So the point that I would make is this, is I want to make sure that when we think about this concept of baptism, baptism is a sign. It points to something. I'm going to throw out a word. I don't even know if it exists. I don't even know if it's a pro- I know it's, I don't think it's a proper way in which you can pronounce it, but I'm going to do it anyhow. Um, we use the word signify, but it comes from the word sign. And then it's got that little thing at the end where it just says, if I. So I'm going to use the word. I'm going to change it. Um, and I'm just going to call it signify. That baptism signifies. It, in other words, it, it moves into some sort of action. What God did something at some point. Our, our goal for today is to try to understand what does baptism signify. Okay, does that make sense? In other words, that it's not, that we don't just simply see it as some sort of activity or tradition, because here's what happens. If we just see it as some sort of uh, disconnected, disjointed tradition, then we will either A, dismiss it and be like, ah, that's old school, it's tradition, I'm not interested in tradition, there's no, no reason, no need to do tradition, therefore I won't be baptized. Uh, that's not how we want to be. Or we can just do it and not have any type of meaning involved in it. It's just sort of, again, disconnected from this bigger, broader Hebraic concept of why you do it. So with that being said, I want to make sure that our concepts of baptism 
are firmly rooted in Scripture and firmly rooted in sort of this culture of Hebraism, of the way that Jesus thought, the way that Jesus' disciples thought, the way that God wrote the Bible. Okay? So with that being said, I want to read you guys kind of something that I had written earlier today, and this sort of encapsulates where we're going with this. So the next slide says this. There we go. Um, think of the various practices, traditions, and expressions seen throughout the Bible as signs intended to direct our attention to God's greatness, revealed through creation and redemption. Redemption, another word for that could be new creation, God redeeming, God making something all brand new. All right? So the purpose of these signs are meant to sort of take our eyes and to look elsewhere, to look at something beyond that sign. The sign is not the end in and of itself. So this is one of the reasons why you know, we reject this notion that baptism saves or baptism is the ultimate end, which we can just, you know, if we can just get you baptized and everything's good. Baptism points to the ultimate end. It, it points to what God has done already through the cross and it brings you in that sense of, you know, of, of physically doing this sign to the point of, you know, enacting it, living it out. In, in a lot of ways, if you can look at it this way, you're like enacting reliving what God has already done through the cross. And that's what a lot of these signs were intended to do. All right, so that being said, um, what you're going to hopefully begin to notice and identify with this morning is that there's a lot of signs throughout the Bible, uh, particularly we're going to start with the Old Testament, in which God establishes these certain signs, and they point to something. They're not an end in and of itself, but they point to something. Okay, so I'm going to ask you guys, here's time for audience participation. Uh, don't go to the next slide yet. Um, the, what I want to ask you guys, what are some signs that you can think of? Think of that God establishes in the scripture and says, do this. But this particular thing that you're doing actually points back to something bigger, greater. So anybody? Give me some examples. Think Old Testament first. Passover. All right, that's, that's the most predominant sign um, and, and, and I'm actually going to come back to that. So, excellent. You, know, you, you, you read my notes. Anybody else? We'll actually come back to that. Any other signs? Circumcision. That was great. That actually came up first service too. Okay, circumcision, yes, is a sign. And it's a sign that symbolizes God's covenant with the Jews. All right? Um, it was the sign that God gave to Moses. He says, here's the way that you and your offspring, your kids, uh, boys, are going to know that they belong to me circumcised the foreskin of their flesh. Now, when the church started, early, early first century, and church was beginning to grow, Paul was sharing the message, and the gospel was going out, and it was going beyond the borders of the Jews. That means a lot of Gentiles, people like you and I, were hearing the gospel, coming to Christ, and finding salvation in and through Jesus, and we were being transformed and being changed. And the big question, the big question that was going on first century was, what do we do with Gentiles? Do Gentiles, do they need to be circumcised? So some of them were. Until they finally went to Jerusalem, they had this big, enormous meeting, and they essentially wrote this, what was called Jerusalem Council. They just dismissed the notion that Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. And all of us men say, amen. Because the bottom line is this, is that if they said, no, every you know, Gentile needs to be circumcised, the first thing, if you're a guy, and you got saved here today, first thing we would do is we'd say, drop your pants, we're going to circumcise you. It's just the way it works. We've got to circumcise you. If you want to be made right with God, part of being made right with God, we've got to circumcise you. That's how it works. But they stopped that. They said, this is not, going to, it's not how it works. This is for the Jews, and it was not for the Gentiles. Okay? 
So yes, absolutely, circumcision is a sign, and it points back to this relationship that God had with Abraham and all of his sons uh, who were in this covenant relationship with God were circumcised. Okay, so any other signs you can think of? So I heard building altars, and what was the other one? Serpent on a stick. Yeah, I would say that's probably, yeah, Jesus even said it. Moses lifted up a serpent on a stick. Um, Yeah, that's good. Building altars, you said? How so? Uh, Like after the Israel crossed the Jordan. Oh, great. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's actually really good. Um, One particular that I'm thinking of, when the children of Israel crossed crossed the Jordan, uh, one of the first things they did is they took a rock. Each head of the family was ordered to take a rock, and as soon as they got out, they basically built this sort of monument of stones taken out of the Jordan, and the intention was, in years from now, when your kids and your grandkids are going to come running down, playing down by the river, going fishing at Jordan, they're going to see this big monument of stones taken out, and they're going to ask mom and dad, you know, where did all those stones come from? Oh, the stones came from when great-great-grandpa crossed, crossed the Jordan, and God miraculously stopped the waters so that God can help them pass through. So absolutely, that's definitely a sign. I'll take one more, and we'll jump on. What? Rainbow, that's great. It's a great sign. Of course, the sign in the sky. Um, God puts this rainbow in the sky, and he says, that is intended. So every time you look at it, and you see it, it will remind you of the flood, but it will also remind you of the fact that I will never judge the world by a global type of a flood, again, that's a, it's intended in that way. So you have signs, variation of signs. Some are way more significant. Some have this tendency to be isolated specifically for the Jews. Um, but you get the idea so far? I'm going to give you one so you can go on to the next slide. Um, the very first one, this, this might surprise a lot of you, but the very first slide, um, the next slide, very first sign that I, I, I can think of in the Bible was actually, um, it goes along with God's creation. And it's basically God saying, look, I want you all to know I created everything. In fact, it was so easy for me, I took a day off. Seventh day, I just rested. I stopped my business, I was done, and I just closed up shop, and I, and I, just, I just took a rest. Seventh day, I took a rest. So God says, so you, when you work six days, because you're going to work out from sunup to sundown, whenever there's light, um, and as soon as you're done with your day, on the sixth day, I want you to rest. Take a day off. Because that day off is going to remind you as a sign. It will signify, signify. It'll remind you of the fact that your God also worked, created, and was very creative in his creativeness. And he created all things, all things visible, all things unseen, all things that exist, God created. And on the seventh day, God rested. And this was a sign that God gave to his people as a way of remembering the fact that God created all things. So a lot of us, we don't think of Sabbath that way. In fact, even in the New Testament, when you think of Sabbath, you think of sort of like this heavy duty, this heavy burden. reason for that is, is because the religious Pharisees and religious leadership basically came along, and they took this gift that God gave to people and said, here's a sign. Enjoy it. Take a day off. Spend some time with the family. Worship me. Remember my goodness. Go for a walk. Climb a mountain. Enjoy my beauty. They transformed it into this big, gnarly task where you had to work really hard, you know, to make sure that you don't work. It's really what it boiled down to. They had all these ridiculous laws that were established just to make sure that you didn't work. Now, I, I don't know about you, but, you know, when, when you are living underneath, within a straitjacket that says, don't do this, don't do that, don't live like this, don't think like that, don't laugh too much, don't work too much. If you go to Israel, I've been to Israel many times. You go to Israel, they even have an elevator. 
It's called a Sabbath elevator. You're not allowed to touch the button because touching the button is uh, the same thing as when you touch the button, it starts, creates a fire. And that fire sends a signal, you know, uh, it's like electric charge that now the thing goes up and down. So they have a Sabbath elevator that basically says, we don't want anybody starting fires. So here's what you got to do. Don't touch the fire. You know, you can just go into the Sabbath elevator that just constantly goes up and down. But interestingly enough, the Jews, if you are on the elevator, they'll go on it with you because you're a Gentile and you can touch the button. They're like, we'll let you sin, we won't. It's just crazy. But all these laws are established. And somehow in the midst of all, this is exactly what I'm talking about, taking a good sign that God intended to point back to him and to his goodness, his creativeness, it's just been absolutely distorted and, and corrupted where no longer it represents God, no longer it points back to God. It just really has sort of this convoluted, man-centered theme to it. All right, so um, the Passover, again, one of those signs we talked about. Uh, it was intended as a means that every time they celebrate, and they do celebrate today, every good Jew still Sabbaths, every good Jew still celebrates the Passover. Why do they, why do they have the uh, Sabbath? Because they remember God's creative ability and the fact that God rested. Why do they celebrate the Passover? Because it reminds them as a sign of God's deliverance for, from their race, or for their race from among the race of the Egyptians out of slavery, and God, with a great arm, delivered them. In the New Testament we see another sign that Jesus actually gives. It was intended to basically sort of complete this beautiful event that took place in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant with regard to the Passover. And on the night before Jesus was betrayed, in fact, if you guys want to turn there real quick, you'll, you'll take a look at this. And this is all kind of, again, setting the stage for what we're going to be looking at in terms of baptism. I, I really just want you to understand that the concept of baptism is in the Bible. It's connected to the Bible, and it's connected to a larger um, worldview that does things with the mindset that the way that we do these things and the fact that we do these things symbolize, point to, signify, signify what God has done. Okay? So in John chapter 13, it basically describes an event that um, Jesus actually was sitting down having a Passover meal with his disciples, and it was in this meal, the rest of the other gospel accounts, uh, exclusion, with the exclusion of John, they describe what Jesus does here in this particular event, where Jesus, in essence, takes the, uh, the meaning of the Passover that's been going on for, you know, past 1,500 or some odd years, and says, all of this points to me. The lamb that was to be eaten every time you guys sat around the Passover meal, and you ate it every year, and every time the kids would ask, Dad, why are we eating lamb? The dad would basically say, the reason why we're eating lamb, son, is because uh, long, long, long time ago, our great-grandfathers, great-great-great-grandfathers, um, they, they were in Egypt, and they were in slavery, and they were in bondage, and they had no freedoms there. And God, because he's a good God, he set them free from the slavery and the bondage of Egypt. And the way that God set them free from the slavery and the bondage of Egypt was he took a lamb, each, he had each of the households take a lamb, and they killed the lamb, and they put the blood on the doorposts of the house. We didn't put blood on the front doorposts of the house, but we're going to eat the lamb. And it reminds us of that lamb that was slain many, many, many years ago as a part of this redemptive act of God. They still do that to this day. You go to an Orthodox Jewish house, they do that. Kids ask the question, why do we do this? Same story gets repeated over and over and over again all around the world. Jesus does a very similar thing. But in this particular case, Jesus gives new meaning to it. 
in essence, he says, as he's drinking one of the cups, he says, this cup, this cup that you're drinking right now, actually is the cup of a brand new covenant, my blood, which is initiating this brand new covenant. It will be spilled, it will be shed for you, within the next 12 hours or so, I will die. 12, 24 hours, I will die. And I will shed my blood for you as re- for the remission of your sins. My blood, this communion, you drink this cup, will signify this. Every time you drink the cup, Jesus says, it will remind you of the fact that I died on the cross. He takes the bread, breaks it. So this, this bread, which was broken for the people of Israel, uh, was, is, also, is my body, which through the bread, God will feed you. God will give you life. That my body is what is a life-giving agent for you. And so Jesus does this, but again, the story gets really beautiful because here's what ends up happening. I'm just going to summarize it for you. What takes place in John chapter 13 says as soon as Jesus was done giving this whole brand new meaning of what the Passover was all about, as if to portray it, as if almost to be like, again, another sign. Jesus himself, a living sign, steps up from the table. He takes off his gown or his clothes that he's got on, and he puts on just sort of this tunic that he's got on, on, underneath his garments. And he says he clothes himself in this, and then he begins to sit down at the feet of the apostles and begin to wash their feet. And you know, you know the story, Peter's like, why are you doing this? You can't do this to me. And at the end of the time, Jesus stands up and basically goes in back and sits down, clothes himself in his regular garments. And what Jesus just does right there is he signifies, signifies the whole cross in that moment. If you want a perfect description of this, read Philippians chapter 2. This is Paul's doctrinal statement of this, where Paul basically says this, that Jesus, <coughs> though he was equal with the Father, didn't count it um, you know, wrong in any way, to sort of step down from his glory, to take upon flesh and blood, to join sinful fallen humanity, though not sinful himself, and become a servant of all, ultimately to the point of death, even death, on the cross. Jesus literally lives that out, acts it out, if you would. And his whole point is to basically say, this is a sign. So every time you eat the bread, every time you drink the cup from this day forward, you always remember the fact that I came into this world as King of Kings, as Lord of Lords, laying aside the glory, became a servant, robed myself in human form, and died for you. Every time you do that. So every time we eat the bread, every time we drink the cup, every time we as a church, as a family, we do that, it's a sign. It portrays what God had done through Jesus. You guys get the idea here so far? So again, thinking along these lines, we realize that this is just the way that God works. He's not just a theoretical God. He's not just somebody that just gives big ideas and then leaves us to figure these things out. He actually does things. He works. He acts things out. And when God acts things out, oftentimes he follows up with some sort of a, an activity that is to be carried out or done that sometimes can get traditionalized, though tradition is not necessarily bad. It can become bad, just like Sabbath became bad because it became sort of like plaque built up on someone's teeth. You know, it just became nasty and gnarly and all gritty and just stained and, you know, needed to be, you know, detoxified. It was just all nasty what ended up happening. And, you know, what, what the point is, is that baptism is also a sign like that. So here's what I want to do. I want to wrap this up by basically looking at four things of which baptism signifies. 
It points to. It causes our attention to go towards something that when we see somebody going in the water, going under the water, and then coming up out of the water back to the shore, it's actually living something out. It's signifying something. It's identifying something. It's pointing to something. So the question is, is what's it pointing to? Four things. The first thing uh, in the next slide that we're going to see it points to is it points to cleansing from sin. The very first thing that I noticed is that it basically points to the cleansing of sin. Acts chapter 22, verse 16 says this. It says, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Now, sometimes people have taken this verse, isolated it, and said, see, what happens is baptism actually saves you. It washes you from your sin. But in reality, again, thinking in terms of a Hebraic sense, that's not the literal type of way in which you're thinking about it. It's the idea that, yes, there, there is a t- sense of cleansing that happens in baptism, but it's not the idea of, you know, a literal, like, you're saved the moment you hit the water. I mean, it, you know, it just, it just not, doesn't work like that logically. Uh, for example, on the cross, uh, Jesus had two thieves on either side. One thief um, trusts in Jesus, and Jesus said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. He didn't say, today, because you're baptized, someone splashed water on you, you're going to be with me in paradise. He just says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And there was no sort of interaction with this guy being baptized. So some are really hardliner on this, and they're just like, listen, you've got to be baptized. If you're not baptized, you're not going to be saved. But the reality is, is the reason why we get baptized is because we are saved. Baptism signifies that. It, it points to that. It identifies that. And the very first thing that it identifies is that we've been cleansed. We've been washed. 1 Corinthians 6.10 says this, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this little statement, and such were some of you, but you were washed. And then he says, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this, because here's the point. The big idea that's going on with this is that at one point in time in our lives, as we've been looking at Revelation, the, the bigger picture of what's happening in Revelation, the idea that we've been trying to convey is this, is that all humanity has fallen underneath the sway and the temptation and the seduction of the devil. All of us. All of us has taken his bait. All of us have been defiled by him. All of us have fallen prey into sin. Some of us to more varying degrees than others. I mean, again, you know, in Lord of the Rings... Not everybody was Gollum. Right, there was like one Gollum, and he was like nasty. And the, that was the point, is that even though everybody had varying degrees of being tempted by the ring, not everybody was as gnarly and as messed up and as ruined as Gollum was. Though, everybody that somehow came in some sort of interaction with it had some sense of like, I want it. I want the ring. It's my precious, right? It's the same way in humanity. All of us have fallen prey given ourselves over to whatever it is, whatever that thing is that the dragon has given to us to follow after, we've been defiled. We've all fallen prey. Some of us, worse sinners than others. Some of you, you're like, I haven't done anything. I've been a Christian my whole life. I've read my Bible my whole life, and I've always felt this sense where I'm a little bit better than everyone. Well, you've committed the worst sin of all. You're prideful. You've got religious arrogance. You've got to con- confess that. The reality is, is that the majority of time that people was, when Jesus was dealing with people, he was, he was just having interaction with tax collectors and with prostitutes 
and all these other types of things that we would just sort of write off today like horrors and just say they have no place in God's kingdom. They definitely have no place in a church. But the worst of the worst of the people that Jesus was dealing with were the religious leaders. You gotta understand, these are the people that memorized the Bible. These are the people that were solid in their theology. These are the people that understood in some ways. They taught in the synagogues. They led the church. They led the people. They memorized scriptures. They were the ones that understood doctrine more so than anybody else. And they were arrogant and looked down upon everybody. And so not only sinners need to repent and be washed, be made clean, so do the religious. So do the religiously arrogant. They also need to repent and be washed and be cleansed. And this is what happens. So Paul just throws out this net. This is why he's just kind of a big list, sort of a big junk drawer of all the sins he can think of. And it's not a complete list either because there's lots of different lists that Paul throws out. And the whole idea is that this is the, the big junk drawer of all the horrible things you can imagine person down the street, the person that's right here in your heart, the people that you've dealt with that have defiled you, the people that have wronged you, you can think of all these ideas. And this is just the big junk drawer. Paul's basic point is this. All of y'all, we're all just like this, to one degree or the next, one shape or the next, all of you have been defiled. But if in Christ, such was some of you, but now you've been cleansed. Now you've been washed. Now you've been transformed. Now you've been redeemed. So how does God see you now? He sees you as pure. Take a look at the next verse. I love this verse. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. In the context of this, this is sort of one of the famous verses that deals with marriage. Um, But if you understand what Paul's trying to say, again, keeping in line with this concept of signs, you know that marriages are meant to be a sign? Do you know that? Signpost. The purpose of a marriage is to be a sign which signifies God. That means when people look at the way a husband loves his wife and he's willing to treat her with dignity and value and respect and lay his life down for her, rather than mistreat her and boss her around and tell her to make him something to eat while he's sitting around on the couch being lazy, while he's leading her spiritually, loving her, laying his life down for her, when people see that, it's a sign which points to the same type of love that Jesus did when he laid his life down for the church. Does that make sense? It's a sign. Marriage is a sign. Okay? It's a sign. Here's what he says. Here's what it points to. It points to the fact that Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Uh, Martin Luther described it like this. At the cross, there was this phenomenal, he called it this great exchange, this thing that happens, where God takes our sinfulness, our unholiness, our defilement, things that have been done against us in which we feel defiled, and things which we've done against other people in which we've defiled other people. He takes all of our sin, all of our filth, all of our wrinkles, all of our blemishes, all of these things that have defiled us, that have just simply left us as nothing more than an odious offense before God. And he places them on Jesus, who dies in our place. And the great exchange happens where Paul deals with this later on in Romans. Christ then gives to us his spotlessness, his wrinkle-freeness, his purity, his righteousness. So here's the beauty of this. When God looks at you, he looks at you as if he would look at his son, spotless, wrinkle-free, 
know what wrinkle-free is? When we get old, we get wrinkle. God looks at Jesus and says, he never gets old. He's just beautiful. He's always sort of in the suspended state of just beauty. And Jesus, in Christ, because we're in Christ, God looks at us as cleansed, purified. You know this word to describe it as? He sees you as a virgin. That's the beauty. Because all of us, because of sin, we've all slept with the whore of Babylon. I said this last week. We've all taken our chance. We've all taken our shot. We've all given our best. We've all slept with the whore of Babylon. We've all been defiled. All of us. But God, who's rich in mercy and grace, has washed us and cleansed us. And now, just like this, he sees us without spot or wrinkle or blemish. And when one's baptized in the water, there's this cleansing that happens, especially salt water. It's this idea, it's this purification. There's just something that feels cleansing. And it signifies, signifies, points back to this great work that God's done inside your heart. The second thing is this. The next one he points out is that it also signifies new life. Something that God does for us in terms of giving us new life. Um, here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. You get the idea that what happens in Jesus is God makes things new. One of the interesting things about our culture in which we live in is we have this like strange fascination with all things new, don't we? There's always like a 2.0, 3.0. We're always looking for the next upgrade, right? We're always doing that way. This is like the big issue, like even on TV. Is like, have you ever watched any infomercial, right? You're like, the chamois will make all things new. That freaky guy, right? He, I mean, people actually believe that guy, all right? My point is that we have this tendency to just somehow want to have all things new. We love all things new. We talk about things new. We want a new marriage. We want a new car. We want new clothes. If you're a girl, you're like, you want new shoes, right? Everything we want new, we like new, because something at some point, things just sort of get old. They wear away. They digress. They become destroyed. They get rusty. They get stolen. We want to replace it. We want something new. But the beautiful thing is, is I think all of our fascination for something new, for all things new, really echoes the heart of God, to be quite frank with you. It echoes the intentions and the movement of God and the momentum of God and the trajectory of God through the gospel. What I mean is that, is that in the end, this is all thing that God's doing. God makes new people, gives us new hearts. We have new desires. Those new desires lead us to new actions. Those new actions create new futures for our lives, for the lives of our children. Think about it this way. A dad who doesn't know Jesus Christ, he's dying. He's tricked by the dragon. He's just simply living in his own little story. He loves himself, mistreats his kid, never spends any time with his kid. But let's say he changes somewhere in the middle of his life where his kid's still like eight years old, and he realizes God's, having forgive, God's forgiven me, God's changed me. I want to make new choices, new decisions, rather than just ignoring my boy. I want to start playing ball with him. I want to start training him up in the ways of Jesus. I want to start spending time with him. We'll go on hikes. We'll just do camping together. I will be to my son a new father. You think it's going to change that kid's life? Absolutely. You guys, quite frankly, that's all we're trying to do here as a church. We just, we just want to see Jesus make people's lives new. And in making their lives new, 
we know that they're going to have new decisions because they're coming from new hearts, new desires. Those new desires lead to new decisions. Those new decisions lead to newness within those relationships, fears that they have, whether it's a family, whether it's a work environment, whether it's the culture in which we live in. The bottom line is this, is that the gospel makes all things new. Baptism signifies the fact that you're a new person. I always love just looking at people in their face when they're about ready to get dunked, and I'm just like, look, do you know that you're a new creation? Do you know that you're standing in 55-degree water? You want to die because it's so cold. I can't even feel my legs anymore because it's just numb down here. I just can't feel anything. It's over. And the reality is, is that you are a new person, a new creation. You didn't make that happen. You couldn't have made that happen, but God did. That's God's loving, kind gift to you. I just, I love that. I love seeing God take people's lives and bring radical transformation, whether it be in marriages or in people's hearts or the way they think or the way they view life. Rather than just being so self-saturated and self-centered, they begin to view their lives in a way of, you know what, God has been so kind and gracious and generous to me. I want now to be kind and generous and gracious to others. It's a new community. Do you know that in the end, final book of Revelation, I know, I peeked, I read it. He says, all things will become new. A new heavens, a new earth will come down from God. All things aren't being made new. God begins by changing our hearts, making them new. The third thing is this, is that baptism signifies the indwelling of God. I love this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So here's what he's saying, is that as a Christian, God comes and he takes occupancy inside your heart. You are indwelt by God. Later on, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he says, For in one spirit you were all baptized into one body. Do you know, do you know that at the end of the age, that when Jesus Christ comes back and there will be this big marriage supper of the Lamb, Jesus doesn't have a harem. He doesn't have multiple churches. He's not having multiple affairs. He's not an adulterer. He marries one church. One church. We are baptized into this one church, and it's in this that God, the living God, comes and takes up occupancy inside of us. That's absolutely amazing, especially when you consider the fact that all of history, all of the Bible seems to be this ongoing uh, story that climaxes, where beginning, God creates this magnificent garden. There's Adam and Eve. It says God's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Man sins. Everything goes downhill from there. Then later on, God finds you know Israel and kind of gets them, and they build this tabernacle. And the tabernacle is sort of like this embodiment of God's dwelling. The Ark of the Covenant, inside the Ark of the Covenant, is where God dwells between the cherubim. All right? That's what the psalmists say. God's there. I mean, Solomon recognizes this is kind of a, this is an irony. On one hand, I mean, God dwelling in a tabernacle, God dwelling in the Ark, it just seems sort of paradoxical because he's so big. And he was right. But at the same time, in grace, God chose to say, I will be identified and noticed in the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the tabernacle. 
And then that gets changed, and now things sort of shift to the temple. And God is now in the temple, and to some degree, more or less. And then what happens when Jesus dies? The veil of the temple is torn. Oh no, where's God going to live now? Paul picks up this whole idea later on in, in Corinthians. And Paul says, you who are in Christ are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Where does God live? The most absolutely phenomenal thing in all the world is the eternal, infinite, powerful God has chosen to take up residence in the hearts of his people. I hope that hits us. That God has chosen to take up residence in you. And if you understand who you are, you understand the profundity of that. That God, though you once slept with the whore, though you once were sinners, though you once fit somewhere in that junk drawer of sinners, that God, in his great love, saw fit to take you and use you as one of the stones, living stones, to build you into this church. Not this church, but in the big church. This is why it's so important, guys, for us to understand. Calvary Slow is just one small, small, small bit player in this big church of God. This is why it's so important for us is to understand this. That yes, God may be doing different things in different areas throughout the church, but at the end of the day, we have to just keep in mind the reality that God lives inside of his people. And baptism, going into the water, signifies the fact that you're being brought into this bigger picture of God's church. It's amazing. The last one is this. Number four. There we go. It signifies union with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, the most famous verse for this is uh, Romans chapter 6. I want you guys to listen to this. This is a great verse. Paul says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were also baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that Jesus as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in his death, in the death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection just like his. So here's what Paul's saying. If I can be as specific and as graphic as I can, the reality is this. Um, on the baptism, you will go out into the water. That's what baptism is. You go into the water, and it's the idea. I mean, water can also kind of be symbolic of this idea of a grave. Um, you know, things die in the water. If they don't know how to swim, you go into the water. It's kind of symbolic of this grave. It's cold. And you go under the water. And you know, when we baptize people, we take you and we dunk you. I mean, we stick you down, all down under the water, right? And it's cold. It's like 55 degrees. It's really cold. And the reality is, is you're wishing you would die. But the reality is, if you're a Christian, you've already died. You've died in Christ. You've died to your old life. You've died to your old ways, to your old habits, to your old proclivities, to your old sinful patterns. And you're a new person. This is why Paul asked this hypothetical question. Should we just continue sinning so that more grace can abound? His whole point is like, no, you don't get it. 
You've died. You've died. It's your past life. That's what you used to be. That's what you used to be characterized by and identified by. That's not who you are now. Now you are in Christ. Now you belong to Christ. Now you live according to the same power and strength and might as Christ. Now the same power that rose Christ Jesus from the dead has also risen you. And here's where this gets really good. When we baptize you, stick you under the water, we don't live you there. We actually pick you back up. Right? You're like, amen, praise God, that's good. Yes, it's really good, because our goal is not to drown you. Our goal is to basically remind you that when you go under the water, it signifies the fact, signifies the fact you've died. Your life no longer belongs to you. But we pick you up, just like the Father rose Jesus up. And now you have a new life, you take new breath, you see the sunlight, everything's brand new because not only have you died in Christ, you were buried in Christ and you have risen again in Christ. All things are new and that's what baptism signifies. That's what it points to, that God has done this for you because he loves you. He's freed you from the powers of darkness, from the destruction of sin, and he's given you life. So again, if you're here this morning, you're Christian, you've never been baptized, I hope you get baptized. If you're here and you are a Christian, I hope this stuff stokes your heart as you remember what Christ did for you on the cross. If you're not a Christian, and I hope you come to Christ. I hope you understand what God really wants to do for you is give you life. He doesn't want to take life from you. He wants to give you life. If anything, what he wants to take is that which is destroying your life, that which is killing you. He wants those things because he loves you. We're going to wrap it up. I'm going to finish up. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. We're going to pray. But I want to just ask real fast, if you're here this morning, and right now in your mind you're thinking, you know, I think I want to be baptized. I'm not going to have you stand up or anything. I'm just curious. Just raise your hand. I just want to see. Anybody here that's like thinking about, planning about getting baptized? Raise your hand really high. I just want to see. That's awesome. That's great. I'm stoked to see that. Good. So what we're going to do, I want you guys to show up next week at the beach at 1030. And uh, we're going to start straight on at 11 o'clock. But if you can get there about a half an hour early, that'd be great. We can kind of talk with you what we're going to be doing, how it's all going to be working. But at the end of the day, what I want you to understand is that if you have never been baptized, I hope that you understand the way that God works, the means by which he works to signify, to put up all these displays, all these signposts is intended to point back to him. It's intended to give a constant, ongoing mini-story of what he's done in your life. I hope you get baptized if you haven't been. If you're not a Christian, I hope you trust Christ today. We're going to respond by taking uh, communion. Again, communion reminds us of, of what Christ has done. So when you partake of the communion, I want you to think about and remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. We're going to respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. Uh, we want to be generous because, again, God was generous to us. It's a way for us to give back generously back to God because he's a good God. And we're going to sing. Singing is an amazing sign. When I was 15 years old, I wasn't a Christian. I, I walked for the very first time into a youth group. I wasn't a Christian. I was brought up Catholic my whole life. I went to church my whole life. I think I remember missing church once because I was sick. And I watched Price is Right or something like that when I was at home. That was it. And every other time in my life, I've always been to church growing up. But the first time I walked into a youth group, and all these kids, the same age as me, a couple of, a, few, a little bit older, grew up in Huntington Beach, all these kids were just raising their hands, singing to God, 
loving God. And I, I, I did not have a category to convey what I experienced, what I witnessed. I just didn't know how to describe it. I didn't know how to put it into words. You know what it was? It was a sign that pointed me to God. It was a sign. It just, it was a signpost. It signified to me, God is in this place because he's dwelling in the midst of his people. We're going to sing. I hope we sing like that. I hope we sing in a way that just exemplifies and glorifies our great God. I'm going to pray. We'll sing. We'll give. We'll worship. We'll confess sin to God. We'll partake of communion. All as a means of pointing back to Jesus. Father, we thank you for the cross. We now sing to you. We give to you. We remember, Jesus, what you did for us on the cross. And we give back to you. We respond. You initiated. We respond. And our response right now, Lord, is this song. It's confession of sin. It's giving joyfully. It's remembering communion. So, Father, right now, we just ask you that you would come and meet with us in this place. Be glorified amongst the songs of your saints.
God, we thank you that even though we were in darkness, great darkness, we love the darkness. And we didn't want to come to the light because our deeds were evil. 
the great mystery of salvation is that Jesus, you've, you've opened our eyes to see how much more beautiful, how much more resplendent and glorious and powerful and mighty you are than our evil deeds that were done in darkness. And you transferred us from that kingdom of that domain of darkness into the kingdom of your dear son. It's by grace that we've been saved. God, we just want to thank you for the work of salvation. And then we thank you that we get to display that work of salvation by something as simple as baptism. Just demonstrates, points to, signifies that great work. So Father, I pray next week would just be phenomenal. It's just hundreds of us on the beach, many, many being baptized. God, I, I just I pray that there'd be a lot of just glorify, glorifying of yourself there in the open public. Do your work, God, we pray. And Lord, right now, that is, uh, as we go from here right now, as going back into this world, as missionaries, we love being united. We love singing. We love gathering to hear your word taught. We love hanging out and seeing faces that maybe we don't see as often as we like. But God, at the same time, um, we also get to go out back into this world as missionaries to help other people, just like we were once in darkness, to help other people come out of darkness and into the glorious light of Christ. Just as the Father sent Jesus into this world, so Jesus, you send us into this world to be light bearers, to be truth preachers, to be lovers, to love people, to demonstrate love. Help us to do that in a way that just brings great glory to you. It keeps our hearts in love with you as our Father. We ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Feel free to hang out a little bit. And uh, we'll see you. See you guys next week.